We're reading several passages from the book of Jeremiah, and I'm going to start in 27, as you see in your bulletin, with 16 and 17, and I'll just read through the passages that are in the bulletin. Then I spoke to the priests and to all this people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought again from Babylon, for they are prophesying a lie to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a ruin? 28, 1 through 4, and then 10 through 17. Now it came about in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Azar, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I am going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I'm also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so will I break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and speak to Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, You have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made instead of them yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. And I have also given him the beasts of the field. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you are going to die, because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month. Chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. And seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you, to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that as we study your word, that you would give us light to understand and also to see what the message is for your church today. Pray for Tom as he preaches. May his words be pleasing to you and honoring to your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. For whatever my observations are worth, it strikes me that people, whether they're Christians or not Christians, sort of get the proposition that some good things only come through some level of difficulty. You hear the, the phrase, no pain, no gain. And the proliferation of uh, alarm clocks and gym memberships testifies to this, uh, this awareness on the part of, of human beings. And, and I'm pretty sure that most born-again Christians understand that real spiritual maturity and real nearness to God don't come without some real hardship at the hand of our Heavenly Father. Uh, But it's one thing to accept that we have to spend some time in God's refiner's furnace in order for us to be conformed to Christ. And it's another thing to let God determine how long to keep us in that furnace and how hot to let it get. My title for last week's message was Embracing God's Correction. My title for this morning is Embracing the Timing of God's correction. And if you, if it looks like those are related topics, that's because they definitely are. This one, this message will certainly build on what we, what we saw last week. It's in chapters 24 and the first part of 27. I believe that, uh, that many Christians live day by day at least hoping, uh, that some kind of scaled down version of the prosperity gospel is true. And that version says that if God allows or engineers hardship into our lives as His children, that hardship will have hard limits. God won't let things get seriously painful, and He won't let the painful things last seriously long. How would that understanding hold up? If one day God sent a very large, very powerful invading army of godless and ruthless soldiers into your neighborhood to take possession of your home and your belongings and to take you and your family and all your friends and their families away to a distant land where nobody spoke your language, you had no rights of citizenship, no vote, no freedom of expression, and severely limited freedom of religion. And what if once you found yourself in that distant place, God told you that He had put you there and that you would all be there for 70 years? How would that situation match up with the notion that God somehow promises He won't let things get seriously painful 
or at least won't let them stay seriously painful for very long. That's exactly the situation that the Judahites who had been taken away into captivity to Babylon were facing when these words were written. In chapter 24, God used a metaphor of good and bad figs to draw a distinction between two very different responses to his corrective judgment toward the Judahites. The good figs were the Judahites who had embraced the judgment of God uh, in that he had taken them away into exile to Babylon. And we saw, we talked last week about the fact that there were humble, godly men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who actually flourished during the time of exile in their relationship and fellowship with God and in their usefulness to God. Right in the midst of captivity. Because they embraced the corrective judgment that God had said He would use to turn the hearts of His people back to Him. On the other hand, we saw bad figs. King Zedekiah and all the Jews who remained in Jerusalem under his very flawed rule rebelled against the corrective judgment of God who commanded them to stay where they were in Jerusalem in willing submission to the pagan Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah and the priests and the prophets and the people in Jerusalem labeled Jeremiah as a traitor and a false prophet because he declared to them God's intention to judge them through a time of extended servitude to the king of Babylon. But amazingly, they happily believed every prophet who came along who told them that God never intended them for, intended for them to have to submit to this pagan king. That this just sort of happened and God was going to fix it. In verse 14, God said to the Jerusalemites through Jeremiah, this is verse 14 of chapter 27, do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. So the first thing he said to Zedekiah is, don't listen to the prophets who say you will not serve the king of Babylon. Now, in verses 16 and 17, he changes the focus a little bit. He's talking to the priests and the people, and he says, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly, shortly be brought again from Babylon, for they are prophesying a lie to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a ruin? In effect, God is saying to Jerusalem, your prophets who promise quick relief from my corrective judgment are lying to you. What they're promising isn't going to happen. Throughout the time of Judah's exile, there's a strong connection between what happens with the vessels from the temple, the the dishes and consecrated furnishings and decorations from the temple. There's a connection between what happened with those, those vessels of the temple and with the people of Jerusalem. 
As go the vessels, so go the people. So when Jeconiah and most of the inhabitants of the city were taken into captivity to Babylon somewhere right around 599 B.C., just before Zedekiah's reign began, most of the temple vessels and decorations were taken to Babylon at the same time that the people were. Here in chapter 27, God predicts, with 100% accuracy of course, that prophets were about to arise in Judah who would promise that those vessels that were taken into Babylon with Jeconiah would shortly be returned to the temple in Jerusalem. And the clear implication is that the people would come back with those vessels. Jeconiah and the, and the captives would come back. But through Jeremiah, God warns His people not to believe those other prophets because the time of the exile and the time of servitude for every Judahite, whether in Babylon or Jerusalem, to the king of Babylon was not going to be short. It was not going to be short. They were supposed to already know that. Back in chapter 25, God had already decreed through Jeremiah that all the nations, including Judah, would serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But God knew, of course, what the prophets of Jerusalem were going to say to the people. Rather than embracing the timing of God's corrective judgment, God knew that the prophets and the priests and the king and the people would kick against that timing with all their might. (laughs) And that's just what we see happening. In chapter 28, Jeremiah takes us from God's warning about these false prophets to a real-life case study of a false prophet who took took it upon himself to rush God's timetable for his corrective judgment. And that prophet's name was Hananiah. This is not the same Hananiah whose name was changed to Shadrach by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who was a friend of Daniel. This is a different guy. In the fifth month of the fourth year of King Zedekiah's reign, and remember that date, fifth year, fourth month of King Zedekiah's reign. It'll be important in a moment. A prophet named Hananiah very boldly challenged Jeremiah face to face. He had a standoff with Jeremiah at the Jerusalem temple in the presence of the priests and of all the people. Hananiah declared that the words he was speaking were the words of Yahweh. He said, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel. That's the exact same speech formula that you find Jeremiah using over and over and over in the book. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel. I have broken, and then he says, and speaking the words of God, supposedly, he says, I, Yahweh, have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'm going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house house which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried away to Babylon. I am also, here's the connection with the people and the vessels, I am also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles who went to Babylon, declares Yahweh, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Whose yoke was this? Was it Nebuchadnezzar's? No. Hananiah's words make it sound very much like the captivity of Jeconiah 
And most of the Judahites was some kind of accident that slipped by God and now God had to fix it. Do we ever do that? It was some kind of unfortunate event that God would soon correct. In fact, there is no acknowledgement whatsoever in Hananiah's words that this exile was God's doing in any way. Jeremiah's initial on-the-spot response in chapter 28, verse 6, right after Hananiah spoke those words, was, in effect, if God chooses to do what you just said He was going to do, that would be great. Some commentators find it necessary to provide elaborate explanations for that response. All that I feel is necessary to do is to let Jeremiah finish his sentence. There's a very strategic hold your horses in verse 7. Jeremiah says, yet now hear this word which I am about to speak to you in your hearing and in the hearing of all these people. Jeremiah says, wow, what you just said, that would be really cool. Now listen to what God says. The prophets who were before me and before you, Hananiah, from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. And then he says, the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of that prophet shall come to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. You'll see where that requirement is laid out. The prophet of God had to bat a thousand. Not 999. A thousand. And if he didn't, he was to be taken outside the camp and stoned to death as a false prophet. Don't miss what's going on there in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 28. There's a very deliberate double standard that Jeremiah is establishing. In verse 8, he says that throughout the long history of God's faithful prophets, the task of the true prophets of God had not generally been to proclaim pleasant news. Back in chapter 20, verse 8, Jeremiah lamented that the reason he had become a laughingstock among his own people was because, quote, each time I speak, I proclaim violence and destruction. Throughout Israel's history, the task of God's faithful prophets had overwhelmingly been to proclaim judgment from the hand of God against the nations and against God's own covenant people. Why? Because the people to whom those prophets spoke on God's behalf were stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious throughout their entire history. Just like you and I were before God saved us, and just like you and I still tend to be whenever we turn our eyes away from God for even a second. I believe one of the things Jeremiah is saying here is it would be a lot harder to catch a false prophet in his falsehood if he was prophesying judgment than if he's prophesying peace. Even if he was making stuff up and claiming to be speaking for God, he'd sound a lot like the true prophets if he was prophesying judgment. But the true prophets of God never had much competition from false prophets when it came to declaring judgment. You wonder why? See, it's not popular to proclaim judgment. (laughs) And it didn't pay very well 
But Jeremiah says, when a prophet falsely proclaimed peace without painful judgment, when he proclaimed peace without painful or prolonged judgment, as Hananiah had just done, it wouldn't be long before he was exposed. Because everyone would get to see that what he was saying would shortly happen didn't happen. Instead of wisely heeding Jeremiah's warning, Hananiah very brazenly took the wooden yoke off of Jeremiah's neck that God had used as an object lesson for the Judahites when he declared that they would be under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. Hananiah took that yoke and he broke it into two pieces. And then he very confidently restated his prophecy of a soon-to-come relief from the tyrannical rule of this terrible king. Hananiah says yet again in verse 11 of chapter 28, thus says Yahweh. And then he says, even so, in the same way that I just broke this yoke of wood from the neck of Jeremiah, even so I, Yahweh, within two full years will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. Within two years, Yahweh will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar off the neck of all the nations. Now, please remember that in chapter 25, verse 11, God had very clearly said that all the nations would serve Nebuchadnezzar for 70 years. See, Hananiah, he wasn't just modifying what God said. He was absolutely denying what God said. And that's what happens when we try to change God's timeline. What we're really doing is calling God a liar. Once Hananiah spoke those words, the standoff at the temple between the two prophets ended for the moment and Jeremiah went his way. And then God God told Jeremiah he needed to speak again to Hananiah and say to him, thus says Yahweh, (laughs) really, you have broken yokes of wood, but you have made instead of them yokes of iron. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I, I have put the yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and serve him they will. And I have also given him the beasts of the field. Now I gotta take a momentary aside here and point out that 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 little phrase, the beast of the field here is sarcastic on God's part. That exact same phrase shows up in Daniel chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar is having a very close encounter with the beasts of the field and it's a whole different situation for him. That's because he became proud before God. He was supposed to be an instrument, a vessel for God's use, and he became proud. And so God humbled him and let him live with the beasts of the field for seven years and eat what they ate. And when he came out of it, he knew God better than he had ever known him. He knew the one true God and proclaimed him. Read that, Daniel chapter 4. I have also given him the beasts of the field. And then here in chapter 28, verse 15, Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, (laughs) Listen now, Hananiah. Yahweh has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am remove you from the face of the earth this year. 
this year you are going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Jeremiah is saying, this year, Hananiah, your life's going to end. And then the last verse, so Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month. So we went from the fifth month when he proclaimed this false prophecy to the seventh month of the same year when he was dead. So it didn't take a year for Hananiah to be dead. It took two months. Jeremiah, God told Jeremiah to tell Hananiah that he had turned yokes of wood into yokes of iron. He had made the difficulty of life under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar even harder by counseling rebellion. Not against Nebuchadnezzar, but rebellion against Yahweh. But what rebellion, what rebellion had Hananiah counseled? Didn't he just try to bump up the the shortness of the time a little bit? No, he told God's people that the words that God had already spoken through his faithful prophet Jeremiah weren't true. When is the first time somebody said, has God really said? He replaced the words of God with words of man that the people in Jerusalem wanted to hear. See, they wanted to hear that the oppression that they were already experiencing from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar wasn't really from God in the first place. It just sort of slipped in. And it wouldn't last long because God loves His people and He's going to fix it. We don't ever do that, do we? You want to know how to turn a yoke of wood into a yoke of iron? When that yoke is God's corrective judgment to return the hearts of His his people to Himself? Just lie to them and tell them it's not really a judgment from God. It just sort of happened and promise them that God's going to see to it that it doesn't last long and doesn't get very hard. Do we ever do that? Beloved, I've been in situations with people in hospitals who were dying of stage 4 cancer and they had Christians rotating in and out of the room telling them that God was going to fix it. I want to clarify something at this point. From one perspective, you and I absolutely do not get to tell our fellow saints when some difficulty that they're facing is corrective judgment from God. And I would never imply that because somebody's sick and dying of stage 4 cancer that God's judging some specific sin in their lives. We don't get to say to another believer, this difficulty is because of this sin in your life. That's God's job, not ours. When Jesus' disciples tried to go that direction to explain a blind man, a man who had been blind from birth in John chapter 9, Jesus said to them, it was neither this man who sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's all the rationale God needs. We don't get to match up specific sins with specific difficulties. And there is such a thing, I had this conversation with one brother this week, there's such, certainly such a thing as fatherly discipline from the hand of God that isn't about correcting a particular sin. Sometimes discipline is simply about making us better at something we're already pretty good at. But from a broader perspective... From a broader perspective, all of God's fatherly discipline toward His people is corrective. All of it is chipping away at everything in our lives that doesn't match up with Christ. And that's a pretty big, pretty big bunch of stuff. 
and replacing it with Christ. And there's never any shortage of things for God to be fixing in our lives, to be at work to change in our lives. He is working every moment in the life of every single child of God and in the life of the body of believers so that we will both will and work according to His good pleasure. That construction project never stops and it's never easy. Even the discipline that we choose for ourselves isn't easy. That's why my gym membership doesn't get used all that much. Now please also understand, I am, I am not saying that God doesn't give us very great cause for joy in the Christian life. Very great. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's how, that's how Peter describes it. First Peter 1. But I am saying that His work to conform us to Christ doesn't make for a life of smooth sailing. And we should never expect it to. We should never expect it to. In chapter 29, Jeremiah sends a letter to the exiles, to the Jews who had already been taken into captivity in Babylon. And in that astonishing letter, God again spells out for Judah how long they're going to remain in captivity. And he tells them the really astonishing part, and that's what's going to happen when the captivity is over. Before God says anything in chapter 29 about the length of the exile, He says this, starting at verse 4, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease and seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. Now if you'll indulge me for a moment, I'm going to substitute an English word that's used three times in verse 7 with the Hebrew word that it translates. It's a well-known Hebrew word. Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its shalom you will have shalom. The word shalom, the beautiful word shalom in the Old Testament means pervasive well-being that comes through relationship and fellowship with God. That's what the word means when it's talking about God and His people. The word shalom means pervasive well-being that comes through relationship with God and fellowship with God. I've heard far too many young believers, quite a few actually, say that they don't want to have children in today's context. They see our culture's rapidly escalating animosity toward everything that we hold dear as Christians as the children of God. And they say, why would I want to bring a child into that mess? It's hard to raise kids in this culture at this point in history in the West, isn't it? Was it easier for the Judahites to raise their children in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord in Babylon than it is for us to raise our kids in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord here and now? I think not. 
And the real question is, what actually determines our kids' well-being? And the answer is the same thing that determines our well-being. Relationship and fellowship with the living God. And the only way that anybody has that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether they lived before the cross or after the cross, it is by trusting in the gospel promises that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ alone that men are saved. If we stop treating our circumstance as the measure of our well-being, we'll stop letting our circumstance bench us from productive life in the household of God. One of the reasons that I think we, we tend to see it as important for God to limit the time that we have to spend in His refiner's furnace is because we think being in that furnace means we have to put the good things in life on hold. We think if we're going to have to live under real hardship, we better not do things like get married and have kids because that will make the suffering that we experience even greater. Hardship is bad enough without having to watch your wife and children go through it too. Beloved, that's the upside-down kingdom, and God intends to turn that right side up in the hearts of His people. In Jeremiah 29.7, God says to the exiled Judahites, Seek the well-being of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its well-being you will have well-being. Shalom. And there's a connection between that verse and what he just said about building houses and having kids. I suggested last week that the church of Jesus in America is a people in exile. We are citizens of the heavenly city and kingdom of God living temporarily within a very godless nation. If God's words through Jeremiah apply to us, how are we supposed to seek the shalom of this place in which God has temporarily put us? How about by showing this godless nation how people who trust God actually live? We have no reason, beloved, to treat the end of our exile as our urgent objective. We do not order our lives out of some kind of panicked effort to structure out as much pain and hardship as possible. We want the lost people around us to see something way, way better than that when they look at the household of the living God. We want them to see people who are convinced that the eternal blessing that already belongs to us through union with Jesus Christ cannot possibly be undone by any temporary earthly hardship, even if that hardship is really hard and lasts really long. This momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison while we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are unseen because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things which are unseen are eternal. We have a hope. We have a future laid up for us that makes everything we experience now doable. And we don't live in this life as people who cope until we get there. We live as overcomers. We live as overcomers who already have laid hold of relationship and fellowship with the living God together with His people. We have been blessed beyond measure. We have been given the unfathomable riches of Christ through faith alone and Him alone. 
And we should be people who live our lives in joy and celebration. If the world around us instead hears us say, I'm not going to have kids because I can't imagine bringing anyone else into this horrible situation. Then we are not seeking the well-being of the place in which God has put us. We're just like everybody else. Instead, if we say, I'll happily bring children in this world and I will pray with all my might that they will come to find Jesus Christ to be all their well-being and to be their very life. And when we say that, then we will be seeking the well-being of this wretched place. Don't resist and don't rush God's wonderful work that turns the hearts of His people back to Him and that He uses in our lives to draw the world to Himself. The purpose of God's long correction, the purpose of God's long correction is unassailable relationship with God. In Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14, God reveals the outcome, the outcome of Judah's long and painful captivity. And as I read these five verses, I'm going to ask you to listen carefully for the heart of what God says He will accomplish through His extended corrective judgment of Judah. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, (laughs) declares Yahweh. Plans for shalom and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Why? Because that place is where God intends to dwell together with His people forever. I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will put my sanctuary in your midst and I will dwell with you forever. That's the central promise of the whole Bible. What has God promised to do for Judah when 70 years of captivity has ended? Well, there's a near-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. At the beginning and end of these five verses is the promise of restoration to the place that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And under the reign of King Cyrus, many Judahites got to come back into the land of promise. But between those two bookends about the place is the heart of God's promise and of His purpose for Judah's time of chastisement from His hand and the purpose of His chastisement in our lives. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for shalom and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon Me and come and pray to Me and I will listen to you and you will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart and I will be found by you. What would make Judah turn back to Yahweh with all their heart? God would. 
And He would use this extended time of humbling and painful deprivation to bring that turning about. Only then would the Judahites who had been taken into captivity to Babylon be ready to return to the land of promise. But that return of the Judahites in the days of Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and Ezra after 70 years of exile in Babylon was merely a near-term and imperfect fulfillment of the promises that we find right here in this passage and in the chapters that will follow. The end of that 70-year exile did not finish out God's purpose to restore the hearts of His people to Himself. That restoration, that reconciliation between God and His covenant people was temporary. After a brief time of godliness in the land, the people of Judah as a nation turned right back to the same stubborn rebellion against God that had characterized them ever since He brought them out of slavery in Egypt to be a people for His own possession. See, beloved, it will require a far more devastating separation of God's firstborn from the place of His dwelling. It will require an infinitely greater punishment and infinitely far more, more far-reaching loss of life to bring about the true change in the hearts of His people that God prophesies here. It would require the substitutionary atoning death of the perfect man and perfect God, Jesus. And it is to that event that this whole book points. It is to the new covenant in the blood of Jesus that will finally restore the heart's of sinful men, women, and children to God. And we're going to be looking carefully at that marvelous promise over the next few weeks. Every promise in the whole Bible that God will dwell in the midst of His people points to the soon coming kingdom of that glorious King in the line of David. Jeremiah 33, I'm, this, we're jumping ahead. I'm just going to finish with this. Jeremiah 33, verse, verses 14 to 17. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Dear Father, we hear those words and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And until that glorious day, we ask You to teach us to embrace Your faithful work in our lives and in Your church to make us more and more like our King and to make us more and more useful for His kingdom no matter what form that work takes or how long it lasts. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.